You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Mark here. We're going to be back in earnest for Season 5 in January, and that's thanks to you. Everyone who pitched into our Kickstarter, everybody who rated and reviewed the show and told their friends, and everybody who just listens, like you are now. So I've got a couple of December episodes for you in the run-up starting today and culminating in a Christmas special I'm really excited about. I'm less excited about what I've got ready for next week, but a promise is a promise. And y'all put in to make our stretch goal, so what can I do? A particularly sideways nod goes out to Carlo Garcia, who chipped in the precise amount of money necessary to put us over the top and make next week's story... inevitable. Thanks, you bastard. And if you're thinking, what the hell is he talking about? You're in luck, because there are some very big hints in today's story. This is a rebroadcast, or repodcast, I don't know what the term would be, of our season one finale. And if you haven't heard it, it'll explain not just what's up next week, but the rather pretentious and opaque title of the show, too. So stick around, listen in, and brush up on this special year-long terrified saga. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, The quality of this guy is a little janky. Sorry for that. It took me a good while to figure out how to capture good audio from my... closet. But stick around. The story's worth it. Everybody has tattoos. You've got, I mean, you've got a pretty good idea, right? Yeah. And you're kind of curious about getting a tattoo, right? No. (laughs) Really not. (laughs) I just always thought that because everybody has them, and I was like, I would never, there's nothing I would ever want because it's, because everything, anything that I would get would eventually, I'd be like, that's, why the hell is that on me? And this felt like something that maybe I wouldn't be that way about, but I don't feel sure in that assumption as, as I was when I, like, had the idea. Why, why did you have that idea? Uh... Because it felt it felt like one of those things that's that potentially meaningful to me. Why? Well, we'll get to it in the episode. <laughs> that's me and my wife Heather on the streets of Andersonville, outside of B Tattoo. And then there's this. How are you feeling, Mark? I hate you. <laughs> what? I hate you. <laughs> Why do you hate me? Because it's your fault that I made this stupid idea and then said it publicly. Okay. I don't think that's my fault. It feels like it. I thought about getting a tattoo before. 
maybe a quote from a favorite book, or a wolf, or something. I, I don't know. I like wolves. For a while, I giggled over the idea of getting a wizard riding a surfboard on my bicep, but I never followed through on any of them. Because no matter the idea, I was stopped by one booming thought. What if this is a mistake? I'm an Olympic-class regretter. If I can do it, I can lament it. I regret what I had for lunch today. So, permanent ink, honest-to-God, cut into my flesh? No way. Oh, uh, also, I, I hate needles. There's no joke funny enough that it wouldn't eventually grow stale, uh, no wisdom that I wouldn't someday find a cliché, no surfboard-riding wizard that wouldn't... Well, no, that would, that would always be cool. But people would ask you about it. What's the deal with the tattoo? Do you surf? Do you whiz? And a couple of decades of feeling those questions would annoy the hell out of me. So, no. Nothing. No tattoos. And then, six months or so ago, I was working on a story for this very show when it hit me. A bulletproof, immortal, perfect tattoo. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today, for our season finale, how the greatest genius in history screwed up, how a podcast got its name, and, most importantly, the story of this rad tattoo. If I just say, greatest genius in history, you can probably get who I mean with one guess. At worst, three or four. Maybe you'd say Da Vinci first, or maybe Shakespeare. Maybe you're one of the cool kids who thinks they're the only one who knows how awesome Tesla was. We all know how awesome Tesla was. But eventually, you're going to say it. Einstein. A guy so smart, his name has come to mean great mind. You don't need to be convinced of Einstein's genius. Even if all you know is that E equals MT squared, and some badly misattributed quotes from internet memes, you take it as a given that Einstein was the smartest of the smarties. Or maybe you're like me, and superlatives make you bristle. Maybe you spent most of your 20s trying to convince people that Shakespeare sucked because there's no way anyone could deserve to be put so high on a pedestal. Maybe you purposely have avoided watching Game of Thrones just so you can see the look on people's faces when you nonchalantly say, I have no idea who that is or what you're talking about. Of course winter is here. It's January. And maybe the phrase smartest person ever chaps your hide because of course it does. It should. What does that even mean? Is intelligence even a static trait, let alone comparable from person to person, much less person to every person in history? It's a preposterous claim. So let's just say the real hard truth right here and now. Albert Einstein was definitely the greatest genius of all time. He just was. No matter how you handicap it, it's true. And you can handicap it pretty heavily. Uh, you can say that maybe there was something special about the time he lived, that discoveries in chemistry and innovations in technology and an incredible worldwide system of universities that made sharing, learning, testing, and theorizing easier and more abundant than ever before... You know, this is a period of time that gave us Bohr and Bohm and Bell and Heidegger and Heisenberg and Oppenheimer and Curie and Fermi and Hubble and Freud. I, I, I could go on like this for 20, 30 more names just off the top of my head. Scores of thinkers 
so innovative and so influential that any one of them could have fought it out for the title of greatest, if it hadn't been for Einstein. Tempted as I am, I'm not going to go through the whole laundry list of accomplishments that cemented Einstein's position. But before we get to his biggest screw-up, I'd like to talk a little about his greatest and earliest success. A little before E equals MC squared, before the photoelectric effect, before the atomic bomb, this is back in 1902 in the city of Bern, Switzerland, where Einstein was working as a patent clerk. While employed there, Switzerland passed a new law that would change the world forever. A law about... Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Clocks. The Swiss, of course, are known for their clocks. But a, a new thing had popped up that put a real wrinkle in their vests. Standard time. Through the 19th century, Europe kept little time fiefdoms based either around true noon or, more often, whoever had the biggest, tallest clock in town. But after the passage of Greenwich Mean, all of the superbly crafted clocks in all of Switzerland had to be synchronized. And since there was no existent way to do that, lots of persnickety Swiss were trying to invent one, which left the brilliant young patent clerk in Bern sifting through application after application, all of them proposing ways to unify time. Which got him thinking. All these people trying to get their clocks set to the same time. Is there even one time to set the clocks to? Which is a ridiculous question, because what would it even mean for there to be more than one time? But Einstein kept thinking it, all the same. Every day, he wakes up, has his breakfast, grabs a streetcar, all aboard for all stops, rides up through town to the city center and the huge clock in the square, sorts through patent applications for syncing clocks. So what I propose we do about all these clock doohickeys is that we first off gotta get three hounds and a groundhog, skunk, possum, or any varmint there's a bite size. Oi. All these Alabama hicks and the constant Swiss patent proposals. He grabs the trolley home. All aboard for all stops. Fake land, made up park, blah blah ridge, and Einstein's house. Oh, that's me. One ticket for fake land, please. Past the town square again, riding away from that big clock. back home to work on his theories. How about E equals NG cubed? No, no. So stupid. Then to bed to start again the next morning. Until one day, and and it almost certainly didn't happen in a flash like this, but that is the story, and it's a good story, so shut up. Einstein gets on the streetcar at the end of a day of work. All aboard! All those places I said last time. 
He sits down, facing backwards, and he watches that big clock receding behind the car. And a thought occurs to him. Mein Lieben, the clock! If he was looking at the clock while moving away from it, it must appear to be moving imperceptibly slower than if he were standing still, since the light is having to travel just an eensy bit longer to get to him. And he wonders, What would that clock look like if I were moving away at the speed of light? And he realizes, It would appear to stand still. Because he would be moving away at the same rate as the light he was looking at. And, okay, are, are you with me so far? Because here's where Einstein's genius really laps the rest of us. Because while you or I might say, oh, sure, well, if you're moving away at the same speed as light, it'd appear to stand still. Like if you're running backwards ahead of a ball, it stays at the same distance as you. But Einstein has this epiphany. That's not what would happen. It's not that light would make things appear slower. It's that they would be slower. Time isn't the universal thing. Light is. So if one of those patent seekers took his clock-syncing device and synced his watch to the big clock, got on that streetcar, and then turbocharged that streetcar to near the speed of light, when he finally got off that car, the watch would be behind the clock. Time on that fast-moving streetcar wouldn't just appear to be slower than that at the clock. It would be slower. Time is different for everyone, depending on how fast they're moving. There is no universal time. This was an absurd idea. It's totally counterintuitive. It doesn't align with common sense or everyday experience at all. What Einstein was saying was that if you stood on the street, all the people walking by you were walking through a slightly slower time than you. And not only that, it also flew in the face of Newton, the guy who at the time was probably the smartest dude in history, who said in the Principia, the same document that gave us the laws of motion, that time was constant, universal, unchangeable, inexorable. But Newton is wrong. Newton was wrong, and Einstein was the only guy to figure that out. It's really not clear how. If you think about it, most of the scientific discoveries in all of history are things that, once you hear them, you say, oh yeah, sure, like Newton's laws of motion. That's simple. It's a meticulous mathematical observation. Brilliant? Definitely. But somebody was going to figure out that apples fall eventually. The conclusion that Einstein reached was so profoundly not intuitive and flew so much in the face of received wisdom that even now, it's just not clear how he figured it out. Even now, it's not a given that without Einstein, we ever would have learned this. And most importantly, he was right. This is special relativity, and it is... Maybe the smartest thing anybody has ever thought of. It's right up there with mass energy equivalents, Brownian motion, and the photoelectric effect. Oh, which Einstein also discovered. All in the same year as special relativity, while he was sitting at the patent office chatting with Besso. In science circle, it's called Annus Mirabilis, or the Miracle Year. 
In 1905, Einstein fundamentally changed our understanding of the universe four times. So, what, what were we talking about? Oh, right. The tattoo. After special relativity, Einstein started working on general relativity, a notion that would still further revolutionize existence. He'd already united wave and particle, mass and energy, space and time. He now began to usurp Newton again by redefining gravity. Einstein extended his observations of light and time and space outward to every corner of the universe. Over seven years, he toiled over a set of nonlinear equations as difficult as any math ever wrestled with. He realized that gravity, until then held as one of the four fundamental forces of the universe, was not a force at all. That the same space-time he found subservient to light was pliable, bendable. That all objects compressed upon an invisible, four-dimensional sheet of existence, creating ruts and eddies and dips. Gravity wasn't a sucking or a pulling force. It was the bowing divot of the floorboards beneath a heavy piano. That alone is amazing. Another in a long string of world-changing revelations. But it's also mathematically elegant. Gorgeous. It's maybe the most beautiful of all formulations ever written. Ask a physicist. Einstein managed to describe the orbits of every planet and the tripping toddle of every child, every rocket that would eventually slip the surly bonds of Earth, and every shooting star burning up against the atmosphere, the spiraling arm of the Milky Way that nests that Earth, the bending of light, the dilation of time, the existence of black holes and quasars, freefalls and orbits, collisions and expansions, minute and momentous. He got all of this into a formula containing nine figures. But there was one problem. Oh no! One thing in the algebra that shocked and upset Einstein. This cannot be! No, something is wrong! Einstein's calculations showed a startling, unforeseen outcome. The universe should be expanding. Humbug! Einstein couldn't brook this idea. He believed, like most people, that the universe was static, permanent, locked in amber. Maybe it was infinite, or maybe it had boundaries. Maybe it was flat, or maybe it was circular. But what it wasn't, what it couldn't be, was growing. And yet... There it was. It was written right there, in the same numbers that so accurately described every other part of the gravitational universe. Faced with this paradox, Einstein, the guy who had changed the world a half dozen times over, who had balked at Isaac Newton, who had literally scoffed in the face of time itself, flinched. All right, Albert. Think this through. What if we just... He changed the formula. Add a little... He inserted a new figure into his equation. A capital lambda. Like an uncrossed A or an upturned V. This variable didn't really mean anything. 
It didn't stand for any known or proposed phenomenon he knew of in the universe. And its value was determined wholly within the formula. The lambda stood for whatever number was necessary to balance out the universe, to keep it still. He called this variable the cosmological constant. But he eventually came to call it something different. Twelve years later, when Edwin Hubble observed through his telescope that all the clusters in the local group were moving away from one another, that indeed the universe was expanding, Einstein removed the lambda and renamed it the greatest blunder of his life. This is the sound of a capital lambda, that uncrossed A, that upturned V. It started as Einstein's cosmological constant, but for me it represents a different, more universal law, more trustworthy than gravity, more stalwart than light. That is the titular constant of this show, the one trustworthy constant in all of human history. Whoever you are, however smart, however rebellious, however unorthodox or original or respected or visionary, eventually, everybody gets it wrong. It's true for Einstein and Aristotle, Pliny and Plato. This season, we've explored a bunch of errors, some small, some large, some reasonable, some unreasonable, from birds to chemistry to pranksters and translators. The unifying lesson that unites them all is captured in this small, simple, single symbol. What makes you think you're right when everyone else ever has been wrong? And here's the clever bit. If ever I look down at my arm and think, this was a mistake? Joke's on me. It was a mistake to begin with. Okay, well that's the argument for the tattoo. It's pretty good, right? On the other hand... Listen, we could go get a cup of coffee, we could see what's playing at the movies, we could walk the dog, we could do all sorts of things that aren't getting you a tattoo, if you want. Look... I think, I think we're going to say, I think I've got a good, I think I can defend not doing it. And then, you know, we can kickstart this. If somebody wants me to do it, we can, we can cough up the fucking change. Ooh, yeah, they can fund next, next season. Yeah. If we put together like a thing where yeah. it's like, if you, if we get to like $500. Right, then fucking make Mark it worth my while. Spend a hundred bucks of it on Right. <laughs> oh God, they're opening the shop. Let's get the hell out of here. I folded like an outside straight draw. And friends, that was the least embarrassing audio. That is the cherry-picked part that makes me sound better than the moment. It wasn't, it was not pretty. Here's the best defense I can muster. And, and let me just say from the outset that I know it's not convincing. But let's just imagine, for a second, that there was some sort of brilliant underpinning for why I didn't go ahead with the tattoo and why I lied for the last 20 minutes or so. Let's pretend it stems from something other than me shitting the bed publicly, standing on Broadway on a busy Saturday afternoon. If we give me that admittedly very large allowance, just for a moment, then maybe we can say that not getting the tattoo provides the same moral, that you can't be sure, that you just don't know. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it misses the point behind the point. That you've got to risk it. 
Einstein could have been wrong on anything and everything. He could have wasted all that time, just like Duryagan was wrong about polywater, just like how birds don't fly to the moon or how Mersenne's famous prime wasn't prime at all. If you're not comfortable risking screwing it up, you can't possibly get it right. You lose 100% of the hands you don't play. And I just... I just beefed. <laughs> I cheesed it. I went yellow. I ran for the hills. Oh, it is just... Very embarrassing. I didn't even avoid the embarrassment. Ugh. Maybe next season. But that's a wrap for this one. If you haven't already, go back and take a listen to the rest. It'll help tide you over until March, when we'll be back with more stories of error and deception and folly, including episodes about parachuting cats, mysterious shipwrecks, the simple machine that helped give women the vote, and the most uncomfortable question every parent dreads. Where do babies come from? The voices you heard this episode come from Luke Einstein Daigle, Aaron Conductor Carter, and Tim Anachronist Alabamian Hick Racine. Special thanks go out to a whole lot of folks for helping make this project a reality. Aaron Carter, our trolley conductor, also helped as a sounding board and script consultant throughout this process. Jonathan Messinger gave me a lot of really great advice about launching and sustaining the show, and where I failed to follow it, it is entirely my own fault. He runs the exceptionally brilliant podcast for kids, The Alien Adventures of Finn Caspian, that you should check out regardless of whether you've got children in the car who you need to entertain. Moral and technical support have also come from Matt Test, Chris Bauer, Andrew Shane, and Kelsey Melvin, all of whom have generously offered more help than I've even been able to take. Heather Chrysler lends her voice, social media know-how, and infinite patience to this production. Definitely couldn't be done without her. And finally, I'd like to thank Lee Rosevere for essentially becoming the soundtrack of this show. When I was planning this season, the thing that scared me most was where I'd find its sound. I knew what I wanted, but I didn't know how to get there. And then I discovered Lee, a prolific and brilliant composer who, out of some combination of altruism and savvy, made a whole lot of beautiful podcast music available to low-rent schmucks like me. Go check him out. Season 2 will start in March, but we'll have some extras available before then, so subscribe via your favorite podcasting service to set yourself up for a surprise or two. Until then, from that toolmaker, that stacker of wheat, that player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.
Thank you for calling. All our representatives are currently busy with other callers. Please, stay on the line as your business is important to us.